Welcome to Creation, Myth, or Miracle. This is your host, ex-atheist Richard Walker. Greetings to another show of Creation, Myth, or Miracle, and I'm going to ask you to continue thinking as you've had to do on the past couple of broadcasts as we look at some new information being determined from very current research in the realm of biology. I was always taught and used to believe the standard neo-Darwinian story, which is that humans and all other creatures are completely determined by the information contained within our DNA, and specifically the information contained within our genes. Why only the genes? Because I was taught and believed the rest of the DNA is pure rubbish, leftover junk from our evolutionary history an idea proven false by our growing knowledge in the realm of biology. We are rapidly determining various types of usage that is made of the information contained within the DNA, but not within the genes. Furthermore, there's an entire field, often referred to as epigenetics, in which information is being identified outside the DNA completely. Dr. Jonathan Wells has recently published a paper that is very pertinent to this subject, and this is the third in a series of four interviews that Casey Luskin held with Dr. Jonathan Wells. These are from the ID the Future podcast. Highly recommended podcast, by the way. I listen to that very frequently. It turns out that the researchers, the scientific researchers that are involved with the intelligent design movement are discovering things that are ignored or simply invisible to those researchers that have a philosophical commitment to naturalism and refuse to see the evidence of design in front of their faces. If you, like Richard Dawkins, insist that even though living things appear to be designed but are not, then you obviously don't chase the thread. You don't look for evidence of a designer's activity because you are completely convinced by your philosophical, ideological, dare I say, religious belief that there's no possibility of a designer existing. Naturalism limits your viewpoint. That's real simple. The intelligent design folks, on the other hand, are willing to follow the evidence where it leads. And if the evidence, if what we observe, leads to an inference that the best explanation is an intelligent source, then they follow that reasoning. And furthermore, they're doing a pretty good job of defining the types of information that are evidence for an intelligent agent. Let me once again share a definition of intelligent design, because the opponents of intelligent design almost universally misdefine it in an attempt to confuse and fool you, the public. Intelligent design is the view that it is possible to infer from empirical evidence that certain features of the universe and of living things are best explained by an intelligent cause, not an undirected process such as natural selection. I'm borrowing this adequate definition from New World Encyclopedia, by the way. You can look this up for yourself. It continues, intelligent design cannot be inferred from complexity alone since complex patterns often happen by chance. ID focuses on just those sorts of complex patterns that in human experience are produced by a mind that conceives and executes a plan. According to adherents, 
intelligent design can be detected in the natural laws and structure of the cosmos. It also can be detected in at least some features of living things. So there's a pretty good definition of intelligent design. Now note, intelligent design is not creationism. I am a creationist. I believe the Bible is true. That has nothing to do with intelligent design, so don't be fooled by that. And once again, I really want to thank the folks over at ID the Future for allowing us to rebroadcast a portion of their podcasts. This information is crucial to anyone who wants to be truly well-informed and is interested in where recent biological research actually leads. You certainly won't hear this perspective from the public mouthpieces for evolution, which unfortunately includes virtually every science show on television. But then that's a different subject. At the beginning of this ID the Future podcast, there's an advertisement that I'm leaving in because it's important. Listen to the advertisement for the book Darwin's Doubt, a very important book that you should read if you have an interest in origins at all. If you have an interest in evolution, you need to read Darwin's Doubt. So pay attention to that ad as well. So sit back, turn your brain in full thinking mode, and enjoy the continued interview between Casey Luskin and Dr. Jonathan Wells. I'm excited about the paperback version of Darwin's Doubt because the publishers allowed me to write a chapter responding to the main critics of the book. And I think this is exciting because it's really going to advance the debate. So says Stephen Meyer, the author of the explosive New York Times bestseller Darwin's Doubt which is now being released in an expanded paperback version. In Darwin's Doubt, Meyer lays out the amazing scientific evidence for intelligent design at the dawn of animal life. And he reveals the debates going on among top scientists about Darwin's theory, debates that the mainstream media ignore. Darwin's Doubt has just been released in paperback with a brand new chapter. Get Darwin's Doubt today at darwinsdoubt.com. That's darwinsdoubt.com. Is all biological information carried in the DNA of an organism? I'm Casey Luskin, Research Coordinator with Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture, and today on the ID the Future podcast, we're continuing a conversation with Dr. Jonathan Wells, a biologist and a senior fellow of the Center for Science and Culture at Discovery Institute. Dr. Wells has recently published a new peer-reviewed scientific paper titled Membrane Patterns Carry Ontogenetic Information that is Specified Independently of DNA in the journal Biocomplexity which again is a peer-reviewed journal that discusses the scientific evidence for intelligent design. At the heart of the scientific controversy over ID are questions that have to do with the role and the origin of information in life, and Dr. Wells' new article is a major contribution to that particular question. So Dr. Wells, thanks for coming back on the show with us again. Happy to be here, Casey. So this is now the third in a series of four interviews where Dr. Wells is discussing his new paper in biocomplexity. We all know that DNA carries information, but as Dr. Wells has been explaining to us, Especially in the first interview, DNA information in an embryo can only do its job in the context of spatial information that is specified independently of the DNA, and some of that spatial information is carried by cell membranes. 
In the previous podcast interview, we discussed the fact that some of that information is carried in a sugar code, and today we're going to discuss how some of that information is carried in the form of a bioelectric code, and we'll close this up with a fourth interview shortly that we'll discuss what all this means for the origin of information, whether or not it can arise by Darwinian evolution, and what it means for embryo development. So Dr. Wells, let's talk about this bioelectric code. What is the bioelectric code and why is it different from the information that's carried in the DNA code? Well, probably all cells, not just nerve cells and muscle cells, generate their own electric fields. These self-generated fields are called endogenous electric fields. Cells do this by means of ion channels in their membranes. These channels pump or allow movement of charged ions such as those of sodium, potassium, calcium, and chlorine, among others. They uh, maintain this flow of ions to keep the inside of a cell negative, electrically negative, with respect to the outside. And the shape of the resulting electric field depends on the pattern of these channels in the membrane. Now, as with the sugar code, the pattern in the membrane carries information. But actually, in both cases, the sugar code and the bioelectric code, there's even more information that we're talking about because it's not just the pattern, the static pattern in the membrane, but the dynamic interactions of that pattern, that information with other cells and its changes over developmental time. Now, Dr. Wells, you obviously hold a PhD from UC Berkeley in biology. And so you understand development, you study development when you did your PhD Some folks might hear talk of electric fields and cells and embryos and so forth and wonder, is this really what science believes or is this sort of some mystical kind of force kind of thing? So these concepts you're talking about, the idea that cells have electric fields and these electric fields are in embryos, I mean, this is accepted by mainstream embryologists. Is that correct? Well, there's no doubt about it. Actually, biologists have known about these endogenous electric fields for uh, about a century. They've been measured. I myself have measured them in a university laboratory. Back in the 50s, it was discovered that the main way cells do this is that they have channels in their membrane that actively, using energy from the cell, actively pump out three sodium ions, each one with a plus one charge, and at the same time allow in two potassium ions, each one with a plus one charge. So with each cycle of the pump, the inside of the cell becomes electrically negative with respect to the outside. But even more importantly than that, by doing this, the pump increases the intracellular concentration of potassium way above that of the surrounding medium. So because of this concentration gradient, potassium ions want very badly to leak out of the cell to even out the gradient. And so there are other channels in the membrane called potassium leak channels that allow the potassium to escape from the cell. Well, each time that happens, of course, the cell becomes still more electrically negative with respect to the outside. And this apparently is true of every living cell. That's fascinating, Dr. Wells. I'd like to know then, how do biologists measure these endogenous electric fields? Well, I realize that the whole idea of uh, an endogenous electric field around a cell may sound kind of spooky, But, of course, electric fields are not spooky at all. I mean, we deal with them in real life every day. And they're known to exist in living cells by various techniques. Originally, biologists would insert 
a very tiny probe into the cell and measure the electrical difference between the tip of that and the outside of the cell. But that inevitably caused some damage by poking the cell. So in the uh, 70s, I believe it was, another technique was developed called patch clamping. In this technique, a very small glass pipette is pressed against the outside of the cell, and the electrical difference between that patch inside the pipette and the surrounding medium gives you a measure of the electric field. Since then, another technique has been fluorescent dyes that fluoresce in the presence of an electric field. These are called voltage reporting dyes. But the technique that I've used myself is called a vibrating probe. In 1974, Lionel Jaffe and Richard Nutitelli invented the vibrating probe, which actually vibrates about 200 times a second in a very small area and measures the voltage difference between the two points at the end of the vibration. And it does this 200 times a second to minimize error that would come from just sort of a random sampling. And I used this in the lab of Richard Nucitelli in the 1990s to measure endogenous electric fields generated by frog embryos. Could you give us some examples of endogenous electric fields in embryos? Sure. Well, for a frog, for example, an unfertilized frog egg generates an electric field that drives a current out of its animal pole at the top and then back in through its vegetal pole. After fertilization, the embryo subdivides into thousands of cells, and these form a fluid-filled uh, cavity in the center of the mass. And this cavity is electrically positive with respect to the outside of the embryo. So this is because the cells are continually generating this electrical difference. At some point after this has happened, a hole appears in the side of this ball of cells, and cells on the outside start migrating into the inner cavity so the embryo can form the tadpole. And during this process, a large voltage flows out of that hole from the inside of the embryo. Later on, when we actually have the tadpole, before the tadpole develops hind limbs, a large electric current flows out of the spot where those hind limbs will develop before they're there. It flows out of those two spots and back in through the gills. And these fields have all been measured. As I say, I've measured some of them myself. So that's one example. Similar examples are found in the embryos of chicks and mice. This is absolutely fascinating. So I think the answer to this question is probably yes, based upon what you just said, but do endogenous electric fields have effects that are biologically important then? Yes, they do. It's long been known that many cells exhibit something called galvanotaxis, which is just a fancy word for they move in the presence of an electric field in a particular direction. Well, many experiments have been done using electric fields that are of the same strength as those we've measured in live embryos. So we're not using a huge electric field. We're using a very biologically realistic field. And some cells are found to move toward the negative pole of that field. Other cells move toward the positive pole. Some cells don't move at all. Now, in the case of nerve cells, nerve cells communicate with each other. They find each other to form attachments by extending projections called neurites. And the direction of the neurite projection is affected by one of these physiological electric fields. So this seems to suggest that 
Electric fields might play a role in embryo development and moving cells around. Do biologists know whether endogenous electric fields play roles in embryo development? Yes, actually, there's very powerful evidence for that. And it comes from artificially disrupting the electric field that's naturally generated by an embryo. And this can be done in various ways. It's been done with conductive shunts, that is little tubes that make the current flow where it's not supposed to flow. It can be done by artificially applying a field in the opposite direction from the normal one. It can be done by fiddling with the channels that generate these fields. And all these techniques have shown that disrupting a field causes deformities in the embryo that are correlated with the disruption. For example, if we disrupt the field associated with the neural tube, we get deformities in the brain and spinal cord. If we disrupt fields associated with eyes or limbs, then we get deformities in eyes and limbs. Same goes for the tail. The correlation is always quite good. And of course, controls are run to make sure that it's the electric field that's having the effect rather than some other chemical effect. And obviously, this bioelectric field involves information that is outside of the DNA. It does, even though, and I'll come back to this in the next podcast, but even though the DNA to some extent specifies the proteins that are found, say, in the ion channels, the locations of those channels on the membrane are not determined by the DNA. Furthermore, once the electric field is generated, I don't want to say it has a life of its own, but it's almost that. One field can interact with another field. The field of one cell can interact with the field of a second cell. And the fields, it turns out, serve as spatial coordinates in embryo development. So the interaction between the membrane pattern, the electric field that generates, and the forms that are occurring in the embryo, the organs and the tissues, the interactions of these three elements, that's actually the bioelectric code, and it's very information-rich. Now, you were talking about some of the deformities that can happen when these electric fields are disrupted. We all had friends that were a little bit off or different when we were growing up, and we said, hey, what's wrong with you? Did you grow up under the power lines? I mean, I say that and joke, but from my understanding is that there is evidence that there are higher incidences of things like birth defects and health problems with people who are spending a lot of time around electric fields. So are you familiar with what I'm talking about and how does this sort of interact with what you're talking about right now? I am familiar with what you're talking about. I looked into it myself many years ago. The fields I've been talking about here are direct current fields that are found in cells and embryos and very small magnitude. The fields that people have attempted to implicate in, say, cancer or birth defects around power lines or associated with microwaves are alternating electric fields. I looked at the evidence myself quite closely years ago, and I found it very inconclusive. So I just don't know. I'm not sure. It's a very controversial area, but in any case, it's separate from the sort of thing I've been talking about. Well, the houses under the power lines are always a lot cheaper, so maybe it's not such a bad buy then. I don't know. <laughs> well, maybe not. Of course, power lines could be pretty ugly. That's true. That's true. I'm not recommending that you go buy a house under a power line. Okay, so let's just close this up with a final question here. You indicated a few minutes ago that the bioelectric code is more than the spatial distribution of ion channels in the cell membranes. Could you please just say a little bit more about that for us? Yes, briefly. I'd actually like to quote a fellow who works intensively on these fields, especially their developmental aspects. His name is Michael Levin, and he has written, this is a quote, many diverse examples of pattern formation are best understood not as cell-level behaviors around any one locale, 
but rather at higher levels of organization. In fact, he wrote that a full understanding of embryo development, quote, will need to involve cracking the bioelectric code, unquote, by which Levin means not the spatial arrangement of ion channels in the membrane, but, quote, the mapping, that is the relationship, between spatiotemporal ionic profile patterns and tissue morphology outcomes. So this is the interaction between the membrane pattern, the field that generates, and the tissues and organs that form in the embryo. And again, this is all information contained in the electric field that's, of course, coming from a source that's not just in the DNA. There's extra DNA information here. Yes, there is, and I'll make that clear in the next interview. Okay, well, I look forward to that conversation, Dr. Wells. Again, we've been discussing a new peer-reviewed scientific paper by Dr. Jonathan Wells. Its title is Membrane Patterns Carry Ontogenetic Information That Is Specified Independently of DNA. You can download the article for free in the Open Access Journal, Biocomplexity, and the website is www.bio-complexity.org, and go check it out. You can learn more about ontogenetic information that's carried outside of the DNA. We're going to continue this conversation in another podcast with Dr. Jonathan Wells, where he's going to talk about the implications that all of this has for Darwinian evolution. I'm Casey Luskin with ID the Future. Thanks for listening. This program was recorded by Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture. ID the Future is copyright Discovery Institute 2014. For more information, visit www.intelligentdesign.org or www.idthefuture.com. I certainly hope you're enjoying this ongoing interview as much as I am, since this radio show is broadcast in Boston, and there are a great many excellent educational institutions in Boston. Hopefully, there are a great many students of biology, genetics, microbiology, etc., who are listening to this. The fourth and final portion of this interview will be in tomorrow's broadcast on this radio show. All four of them will be available at creationmythormiracle.com as well as podcasts. In the short time that I have remaining, let me continue the discussion that was at the end of yesterday's broadcast, a cell processing information like a computer network. I mentioned genes basically being like low-level subroutines in a software program, subroutines that are often reused across various applications, hence seeing similar or identical genes in various types of living creatures, absolutely is expected from this view. And yesterday we mentioned that our DNA is actually repaired by cells. We have an error detection and repair mechanism within our cells, much like the advanced memories used in servers. Furthermore, we now know that non-genetic information, epigenetic information, is used to control when genes are invoked, when they are expressed, when they are not expressed. This is similar to an application deciding when to call a subroutine and, furthermore, what to do with the result of the subroutine. There's also a great deal of communication that goes on within a cell. Much of it we're just scratching the surface on. We don't really know how it works, but nonetheless we know it is occurring all of these products being produced, these proteins being produced by reading genes and executing them, if you will, are coordinated into assemblies. They are moved to the appropriate place within the cell. 
They work with other proteins produced by other genes. So you could sort of think of this like the communication on a local area network. Computers that may reside very close to each other and they have a way to communicate with each other. However, cells also communicate to other cells. Again, an area where we're learning a lot about how it works. This could be considered like a wide area network. The internet, for example. In fact, I find the notion of communication between cells very interesting. And since Dr. Wells has been talking about things that go on in the cell membrane, part of that is involved in intercellular communication. This whole notion within developmental biology or embryology as to how a single fertilized cell not only multiplies itself into trillions of cells, but differentiates itself into thousands of different types of cells and many, many different resultant types of tissues and organs. Absolutely amazing how all of that gets coordinated. And yet, to an atheist, this is undesigned. You have to ask yourself, is that really a believable explanation? Or is there evidence for a designer in life around us? SeeCreationMythOrMiracle.com